Hello, and welcome to Kindred Spirits Book Club, the podcast where two grown-ass ladies geek out about Anna Green Gables. I'm Reagan Duffy, and I'm joined by my co-host, Kelly Gurner. Hey, everyone. Kelly, how are you today? Oh, doing well. Staying warm as our Southern California winter kind of starts to wind down. How about you, my friend? Same, same. I finally gave in after thinking about it for far too long and bought myself fingerless gloves to wear in the house when I am typing. I love them so much. And I know our Northern friends and relatives and listeners are probably laughing at the fact that I think I need fingerless gloves, but oh my God, I love them. Here's the thing that people who don't live in Southern California don't understand when we say that we're cold and it's 60 degrees out. Most of our houses don't have very good insulation. (laughs) Right. They're built to stay cool in the summers. Well, Since today we're going to be talking about the 1985 miniseries of Anne of Green Gables, which is a favorite from both of our childhoods, I was thinking, what other movies were formative to you in your childhood? Mm, So many. Well, so I identify as an elder millennial, meaning that I was born in the very early 80s. That means that I was exactly the right age, I should say, for some of those truly great 90s Disney movies like The Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin and The Lion King. I think I was 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, right as those all came out in succession. And so I loved all of those, wore those VHS cassettes into the ground. I can still very clearly remember rooting for Beauty and the Beast to win the Best Picture Oscar. And my mom let me stay up all night. Well, not all night, but let me stay up late to watch the whole Oscar ceremony all the way to the end. I think I was probably eight or nine. So yeah, those were huge favorites in our house. We also loved those classic, like wonderful fantasy movies like Princess Bride and Neverending Story. You know, I rewatched the Neverending Story recently and I sobbed. That movie really goes to some, yes, it goes to some emotional, emotional places. Yes. I have not showed that to my daughter yet because I don't know if I can take the emotional pain of that scene in the swamp. Yes, the swamp scene. I know, Artax. Either I had like suppressed my memory of that scene or maybe just when you're a kid, really awful things don't feel quite as awful yet. I don't know what it is because I reacted to that way more strongly as an adult than I ever did as a kid. But that movie was big. And then let's see, my little gothy heart always loved the Adams Family movies. Oh, the classic with Raul Julia and Angelica Houston as Morticia. Christina Ricci is Wednesday. She's amazing. I'll play the victim all your life. Ugh, love it. Love it. Love it. And those movies I rewatch constantly. The whole aesthetic of them just completely defined so much of <laughs> <Yes>. my, <Okay. laughs> my growing up years. That brings you a little more into focus, Kelly. That yeah. That? Yeah. Yeah. Little black dresses and long black braids. I wish. Mm-hmm. What about you, my friend? Well, The Princess Bride, for sure, that was a big family favorite. I know we watched it a ton. And I remember my sister and I memorizing and then acting out the sword fight scene. We loved that. Oh, iconic. Yes. We thought it was so clever and so funny. And the last time I rewatched it, I felt like it held up pretty well. I think it does. I've seen that movie in adulthood and I really like it. Yeah. It's genuinely very, very funny in a lot of parts. Wallace Shawn is hilarious. It is genuinely very, very funny. Mm -hmm. Mandy Patinkin is wonderful. It's great. 
Yes, all of it. All of it is so good. Let's see what else. Labyrinth as a movie, the aesthetic of it really stuck with me. The kind mm-hmm. of creepy Muppets and yeah. just the the weird but vaguely dirty world of Labyrinth. Yes. I don't know. Like there's it's something kind of very- it's like gritty and romantic all at the same time. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. gritty and romantic. Mm-hmm. We were also big into musicals as a family. And so we watched a lot of classic musicals together. The Sound of Music, My Fair Lady, and Oliver. My dad really liked to sing and my mom liked to sing. So we would Mm -hmm. watch movies and then we would listen to the soundtrack a lot. I have very vivid memories of watching all of those together. I love that as someone who's also from a musicals family. And I feel like that is kind of one of those kindred spirits things that I find in adulthood where I connect with people and it's like, were you from a musicals family or not a musicals family? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. All of those kind of classic musicals from the 60s, 70s. I think we watched a lot in our house. Camelot. I was obsessed with the cast album for Pippin. For quite a while. Gotta find my corner of the sky. Oh, yes. Yes. So I remember showing my husband, my fair lady, I think we were dating still at the time. And I I don't even think I was formally showing it to him. I think it was just on TV and I turned it on. That was definitely one of those background to my childhood movies. Mm -hmm. And he kind of sat down and watched it. He had never seen it. And he was like, what is this movie? He's like, (laughs) what is this man doing to this girl? He's like, this is terrible. And I'm like, oh. Just Just go with it. Just go with it. Yes, we know. We know that this is patronizing and misogynistic, all of that. But the music, but the music. Okay, here's one that the men who have married into our family are still Mm -hmm. appalled by. Okay. Seven brides for seven brothers. Oh, yeah, that one's hard. That one's rough. That one's rough, (laughs) but we watched it. We loved it. My brother in law is still horrified like anytime we bring up seven brides for seven brothers he's that movie oh yeah oh no dancing lumberjacks <laughs> oh that's so funny oh yeah no there was uh that that's one of those ones that I think I showed my husband and he was worried about he us. was worried <laughs> he was worried about us also vaguely traumatized I think by the music man when I showed him what is a shapoopy what isn't a Shapoopy? Steve, come on. I love The Music Man. We were very, very lucky that we got a chance to see it on Broadway last year with Hugh Jackman and Sutton Foster. And Jealous. my goodness, that is just one of those classic mid-century musicals where you were just like, this is what this art form is all about. Like we are just up here singing and dancing and having fun and tapping our toes. So jealous about that. Anyway. So today we are going to talk about one of our favorite adaptations of Anne of Green Gables, the 1985 Canadian miniseries for the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. It was released as a two-part miniseries on December 1st and 2nd, 1985 in Canada, and then in the U.S. on PBS on February 17th, 1986. I think for both of us, this is the adaptation that provides much of our visuals and our references for the book. This film was directed and produced by Kevin Sullivan and stars the amazing Megan Follows as Anne, Colleen Dewhurst as Marilla, and Richard Farnsworth as Matthew. This film is still the highest rated drama in Canadian television history, and Megan Follows won a Gemini Award, which I think is sort of similar to an Emmy Award in the United States, for her role as Anne. 
in our very first episode, and Regan, I cannot believe that this is our 15th. (laughs) Yay us! Yay us! (laughs) All the way back in episode number one, we had previously talked about how both of us grew up in a time when this miniseries was getting a ton of TV time, either on PBS or on the Disney Channel. For me, I really felt like the miniseries was a major touchstone in my life. I know when we watched it the other night, just hearing the soundtrack was pretty emotional for me. A lot of feelings from my childhood came flooding back, and I had a moment where I felt honestly like really overwhelmed by it. I experienced a lot of chaos as a kid, and one of my coping mechanisms was to escape into books, and Green Gables and Avonlea was always my favorite place to go, so watching that movie with you the other day, I really felt my body relax into that sense of safety in a profound way. Did you have any unexpected reactions or observations when watching the movie, Reagan? What was your experience watching it as an adult? Did you like it? Oh, I loved it. I still love it. Yeah. And I really get that same sense of nostalgia and safety rewatching this movie. The visuals, the music, it all like unlocks a sense of comfort for me. And it's that same way I feel when I reread a favorite book, honestly. I loved watching it with you and my daughter. We made raspberry cordial and shortbread and tea. We took advantage of the gloomy weather to hunker down with all three and a half hours of this movie. (laughs) Yep. It's it's a long one. It's a long one. And the raspberry cordial was delicious. Good job. Why, Why, thank you. I got the recipe right out of that Anne of Green Gables cookbook. I still laughed at so many of my favorite scenes. I still got teary at the end when Matthew dies, just like I always do. Mm. The one thing that was a bit different for me watching it this time was now after 14 episodes of deep dives into the book, I was more acutely aware than usual of how it differs from the books. I caught specific quotes where other characters say them in the movie than in the book, little things. And it didn't lessen my enjoyment, but it did make me wonder the why of some of those changes. And because this movie existed right along with this book for me as a child, I didn't clock a lot of those differences at the time. And in fact, I think I sometimes confuse the book with the movie in my mind on some of those specifics. But watching it hot on the heels of these last 14 episodes, I was really on top of what was different in the movie. Not always in a bad way, but it just made me curious about some of those editorial decisions. Yeah, I think I had a similar experience, Reagan, and and definitely I was noticing those places where I had conflated reading the book with the movie. When we were reading the book for this podcast, I kept having those moments where I was expecting a certain scene to happen or expecting a certain character to say something. And then when we saw the movie, I was like, oh, that's why I thought that was going to happen because that happens in the movie, but it's not actually part of the book. So that happened a couple of times for me. And it's just interesting how your memory sort of messes with you in that way. Yeah. Well, I think it goes back to when we talked about the Lady of Shalott, why we are all so convinced that she's portraying the Lady of Shalott because that is very woven throughout this Mm -hmm. movie. Two times, even, we get references to the Lady of Shalott. And so it makes perfect sense why our entire generation thinks that's- Got it wrong. (laughs) Right, of course. Yeah, that's all kind of wound up together. So Kindred Spirits, this episode is going to be a little more freewheeling than our usual episodes, but we still wanted to kick it off with a quote of the episode. The miniseries is pretty faithful to much of the text of the book. But we also get some moments with the characters that we don't get to see on the page. And one in particular I really like is between Matthew and Marilla, right after Anne leaves for Queen's Academy. Reagan, do you want to act this out with me? Do you want to be Matthew? Okay, I'll give it a try. (laughs) All right, so we start with Marilla. I'm afraid for her, Matthew. She'll be gone so long, she'll get terrible lonesome. You mean, we'll get terrible lonesome. I can't help wishing she'd stayed a little girl. 
Mrs. Spencer made a lucky mistake, I guess. It wasn't luck. It was Providence. He knew we needed her. Even with her queer little ways. I loved her for them. I could never do that line reading with quite as much emotion and poignancy as Colleen Dewhurst, but isn't that a great moment? It really is. It really is. And you see how the two of them connect as parents watching their girl go off to adulthood. Strengthening their own relationship in addition to their relationship with Anne. Yes. Another thing I just think we need to clear the air about with this adaptation is that we are going to be pretty much incapable of being unbiased or neutral here. Sorry. (laughs) Yeah. We definitely have some critiques. Yep. But the miniseries is so intertwined with our childhoods Mm -hmm. and our love for the book series that we're just not going to be able to be truly objective here when we're looking at it. Yeah. This miniseries gets so much right in the way it captures the books, from the script to the look and feel of it. But the casting is really where the story comes to life. I think it's part of the reason why this is such a definitive take on Anne of Green Gables. Megan Follows gives Anne all of the energy and whimsy and sweetness that we know from the books. If we have to be critical at all, it's probably to say that she's just a little too pretty. Anne is so often described in the books as homely and awkward looking, and not just because of her red hair, but Megan Follows is a very conventionally pretty young woman. We have to sort of suspend disbelief here or else just believe that it's her red hair that automatically makes her unattractive in the world of the show. Megan Follows was 16 when she was cast as Anne, and apparently, despite being highly recommended to Kevin Sullivan, he didn't love her first impression. Still, when she came back to be seen again, there was some difficulty regarding timing and she was frazzled, and her more frantic energy in the second audition convinced him that she was perfect. This is a quote directly from Megan Follows, what she had to say about the audition process. She says, I was one of the first people they had seen in the previous year, and they'd since seen 3,000 people, and they hadn't found who they were looking for. And I got another crack at it. I think I was there three hours working on the scenes. And if I recall doing some of them with nobody in the room with me, just to a plant in the office. Then the next morning, just before we were going to the airport, this frantic call came in. Mysteriously, the tape had been destroyed. I had 45 minutes to get back down there and do the whole thing again if I wasn't going to miss my flight. And then I thought, Okay, it's in the hands of the fates. Oh my gosh, that's so chaotic. Also, can you imagine they saw 3,000 potential Anns? That's insane. They must have been really devoted to getting that casting right. Oh, yeah. You know, and I can understand that with the pressure on them because the series is so popular and just so iconic for Canadians. Colleen Dewhurst and Richard Farnsworth as Marilla and Matthew are also just... Mm, chef's kiss, perfect casting choices. Colleen Dewhurst especially is just doing incredible work when she finds that balance between being stern and foreboding, but also so genuinely loving and kind. Her laugh in this is so warm and rich, and you know when you hear it that whatever trouble Anne is causing, she's going to be forgiven. Richard Farnsworth does a lot with very little dialogue, and of course, he takes part in one of the funniest scenes in the whole show, the 20 pounds of brown sugar. Both of them are so incredibly expressive, and I kind of wonder if it's because they are both actors from like an earlier era. Richard Farnsworth's acting career began in the 1930s, and Colleen Dewhurst's began on stage in the 1940s. So they really know how to say a lot with their faces and their reactions. 
And that feels really true to the spirit of the books, too, because so much of the humor of the books comes from Anne's foibles as filtered through Marilla and Matthew's reactions. Yes, the casting in this version of Anne is just flawless and such a huge part of why so many people were drawn to this movie initially and why it still holds up so many years later. Mm-hmm. Marilla and Matthew, you're right, are just so perfect. You can see that twinkle in Colleen Dewhurst's eye, even when she's being strict with Anne, that hints at Marilla's sense of humor. And you see that softness in Matthew's interaction with Anne, even when it's wordless. Yeah, they're great. And, you know, we could also just wax on and on about Jonathan Crombie as Gilbert. He makes Gilbert a leading man very easily. And he does that perfect longing look in such a romantic and heartfelt way. You know, and you can also see that he's hurt by Anne's cold shoulder. And then he finds a way to sort of give Gilbert a little bit of an edge. Like he's viewing Anne as a challenge. And that might be part of her appeal to him as well. I mean, perfect schoolboy crush, right? Absolutely. Definitely one of my first crushes. Same. And then, you know, I read that this was also his first acting role outside of high school theater. Oh my God, really? Yeah. Can you imagine going from high school plays to this? All of a sudden just catapulted into not just celebrity, but cover boy status. Wow. Okay. Let's also discuss Skylar Grant as Diana for a minute. So cute. Yeah, she is. But I'm not sure whether this is a casting issue or a characterization issue, but I find Grant's Diana to be a little sillier than I read her in the book. Mm. Not terrible by any stretch, but I don't know. Her Diana just doesn't deeply impress me the way that some of the other actors do. You know, that makes sense because Diana in the book is so practical. Like we've talked about, she's super socially savvy and she has her eyes on like what her future is going to be. And while Diana likes that Anne is around to drum up some excitement, you do get the sense that in the book, Diana at her core is a really common sense kind of kid. And the Diana in the miniseries, in comparison, seems just really flighty and frivolous. And all of that social awareness that we associate with Diana just kind of comes off as gossipy for the show. I think it's kind of an unfair characterization of Diana, who is a great character in the book and a perfect foil for Anne. Did you know that Skylar Grant is Katherine Hepburn's niece? What? Yeah, Hepburn actually recommended Grant for the role of Anne, but they didn't want to cast an American as this iconic Canadian heroine. So they kept looking until they found Megan Fellows, apparently looking through 3,000 actresses. 3,000 kids later. (laughs) Yes. But Grant's scene in the Raspberry Cordial incident, absolutely iconic. Oh, yeah. The way she eyes the bottle of current wine and then gets more and more unsteady in her pouring of it. No notes on Drunk Diana. (laughs) Oh, yeah. She is perfect in that moment. And Drunk Diana is one of my all-time favorite gifts. You know, and Skylar Grant is really beautiful, which is another important Diana trait. I'm kind of surprised that she hasn't acted more with that kind of family legacy. It's so interesting to think that Katherine Hepburn had a hand in this production in some small way, but it figures that she would have been a fan of Anne. But now let's talk about some differences. Now, of course, there are going to be differences when you adapt a book into a visual medium. So much of Maud's writing is descriptive or in someone's thoughts, and you have to find some other way to, to get across that feeling in a book. For me, I really see the descriptions of the natural beauty of Prince Edward Island as a hugely important part of the book. And the interesting thing about the movie is that while it can actually show us these beautiful locations, I don't know about you, but I particularly love the location they found for the White Way of Delight. It's so pretty with all those trees in bloom. But we still don't see them the way that Anne sees them, right? 
I can absolutely appreciate the natural beauty that we see in this movie, but I don't have quite the same like awestruck wonder that you get from Maud's descriptions. And then as another detail, a lot of the movie was actually filmed in Ontario rather than PEI. Oh, interesting. A lot of Anne's adventures in the books are relayed by Anne to Marilla after the fact. And the charm comes not just from the actual scrape that Anne has gotten herself into, but in the dramatic way she describes it to Marilla and Marilla's sarcastic and dry reactions. Yeah, I do think we see some of that just because Colleen Dewhurst is doing absolutely heroic acting work. But I agree, we're really missing out on Marilla's sort of wry knowing perspective as it exists in the book. Yeah, with an actress other than Colleen Dewhurst, you might not get that at all. But she does convey a lot in a reaction shot. Yeah, she's pretty skilled. (laughs) It's really a challenge with a book like Anne of Green Gables is that it comes with this episodic nature. The plot is sort of meandering and slow. And then like a movie needs more of a driving action and a through force to keep the momentum going. So it makes sense that events are going to be condensed and reordered, that characters might be combined or left out to make a smoother storytelling experience. And I'm glad that we do have the length of time of the whole miniseries instead of trying to condense the book into a 90-minute movie. But even with three and a half hours, there is a lot that sort of just gets lumped together. So some of the things that fall into this category of pacing and storytelling changes are things like Anne's age. In the book, she arrives at Green Gables at 11, and the movie starts her at age 13. So the events of the book are condensed into three years instead of the five of the book. And I have to think that's also because they needed an actress who could play Anne at every age and casting a young woman who can play 11 through 16 would have been pretty challenging. I think 13 through 16 is a lot more realistic. I'm sure that's part of it. We also start the movie with Anne at the Hammonds and we get a glimpse of how stark her life is there. And then we follow her to the orphanage. Then it's revealed that she'll be sent to Prince Edward Island. And these scenes are so awful. I really forgot how bleak they were and just how cruel Mrs. Hammond is to her. But it's better to show the audience than have Anne just tell Marilla what was happening later on in a monologue. Especially because Anne downplays her past so very much with Marilla. Mm -hmm. Seeing the bleakness of her life is very effective. So all of that happens before we even meet Matthew and Marilla. But we do at least start our time on Prince Edward Island from Mrs. Lynn's perspective, seeing Matthew driving off to Bright River in his suit. That gives the story more action from the very beginning and sets the stakes for Anne. If she doesn't stay at Green Gables, we see what the other type of situations are that she could be going back to. We also get a lot of action in her first few days at Green Gables, jumping right into Anne's blow up with Mrs. Lind, the amethyst brooch, the church picnic, meeting Diana, and the first day of school with the slate disaster happening, all within a few days of each other. The movie combines meeting Diana and the church picnic and uses the picnic to introduce Josie Pye, the Allens, and Gilbert all at once. It's such a whirlwind. And one thing that the book does really well and really deliberately is that Maude gives Anne a chance to settle into her life sort of one step at a time. First, she meets Matthew. Then she meets Marilla. She gets to know Green Gables. Then she meets Mrs. Lind. She has the experience of going to church, but not knowing anyone in Avonlea yet. And then finally, she meets Diana. She kind of gets to know the land around Green Gables and Orchard Slope. And after several chapters, she finally goes to school and meets the other children. It's like this really sort of gradual growing out from where she starts. And along every step of the way, Anne is sort of figuring things out and getting into these like little scrapes and misunderstandings, but it all takes place over what seems like several weeks. So then to cram all of that action into three days, let's face it, there is no way Marilla could have handled that much excitement, much less Anne. 
Yeah. The pacing of the book, it appears that she arrives at Green Gables around the end of the school year because Marilla makes a comment about not bothering to send her to school because there's only a few weeks left in the school year. Then she's at Green Gables all summer and then starts school in September. All of those incidents take at least eight to 10 weeks, right? And that makes sense because that's like the amount of time that she and Marilla and Matthew all need to kind of get to know each other. If you had incidents like blowing up at Mrs. Lind and the the amethyst brooch incident right next to each other, I don't think that Marilla would have been able to keep Anne. I think that would have been too much, right? There would have been too much mistrust there. But because there was a lot of passage of time between those incidents, there's more chance for them to grow and connect. Yeah, that sounds right. (laughs) So poor Anne doesn't even get a few peaceful weeks of school in the movie. We get that slate smashing incident on her very first day and the green hair incident very early on as well. And then we also find out because Diana gossips about it, that Marilla was once courted by Gilbert's father. So we find that out at the very beginning too. Which is also interesting and like very early sort of setting up a romantic subplot. Yes. Anne's shameful seat next to Gilbert as punishment is moved further into the school year, maybe to kind of keep the tension between Anne and Gilbert. Anne walks the ridgepole at the end of her first year of school at Mr. Phillips' going away party with everyone in attendance, not just the girls. Anne only sprains her ankle falling off the ridgepole. And as Diana helps her limp home, that's when we get the haunted wood scene. And then Anne falls through an abandoned basement and sprains her other ankle, necessitating being carried home by Diana's dad. Talk about upping the stakes. Both ankles... The Raspberry Cordial Affair moves to the second year at Green Gables when Miss Stacy is there to console Anne and encourage her to keep the faith. In a contrast to the book, the mouse in the pudding sauce incident is actually shown and it's combined with Miss Stacy inviting Anne to join the Queen's class. I love that though. I love that mouse in the pudding sauce scene. It's hilarious. Look, as someone who has had to deal with more than her fair share of dead mice, (laughs) having numerous cats, (laughs) a little closer to my experience than I'm really prepared for, I have quite an archive of gross dead mice stories. The Queen's study group is formed during her estrangement from Diana, which works narratively since it's another separation between Anne and Diana. And the saving of Minnie May leads us right into Puff Sleeves, right into jumping on Miss Barry, then the trip to Miss Barry's at Charlottetown, where Anne also takes the Queen's exam. So we've mashed up those two experiences at Miss Barry's house as well. Miss Barry does not get nearly enough time to shine in the miniseries. Relegating her to three scenes is tragic. And, you know, I would have loved to see more of Anne and Diana's first trip to Charlottetown when they go to the exposition. I mean, realistically, I understand that that's probably a huge set piece that would have been too expensive to film, but it really marks such an important turning point for Anne in realizing that her home is Green Gables. Yeah, I don't think we get nearly as much of Anne's growth arc regarding how her imagination goes from grandiose extravagance to more modest embellishments as she has a place that she truly can put down roots in Green Gables. We jump over a lot of that growth. Yeah. We get the Lily Maid moment when Anne is waiting for the Queen's pass list to come out. So that means that the rescue on Barry's Pond with Gilbert is then immediately followed by the White Sands Hotel concert and then the year at Queen's. And then like in the book, we see very little of Anne's year at Queen's, but we do see her win the Avery, which is shortly followed, unfortunately, by Matthew's death. And then we wind up with Anne declining college to teach, finding out that Gilbert has given up the Avonlea school so Anne can stay close to Green Gables while teaching. It is dizzying at this point. We hit most of the important events along the way, but it doesn't quite have the leisurely pace of the book. No. 
And I think that's inevitable in an adaptation. Anne's growth arc is naturally compressed by going from five years to three years. And we have various montages of Anne and Diana wandering in picturesque locations that stand in for the details of their friendship and for Anne's experience of the natural beauty of Avonlea. We also have the general change in the movie from the late 1870s, early 1880s, late Victorian era from the book to the Edwardian era of the early 1900s. And that's a change that Kevin Sullivan made particularly for the fashion. The look was moving to less constricting clothes and lighter weight fabrics and a lighter, more pastel color palette. And that color palette just works so well in this movie. The fashion in the movie. Oh, it's so lovely. I am very in love with the dress that Anne wears to recite at the White Sands concert. Oh, I was not prepared for how well some of the fashion would age. I still wanted most of the outfits that Anne wears. I approve of this change. Puff sleeves were in fashion throughout these years, so that all stays the same plot-wise. And then that just really soft, textured, feminine aesthetic is so pretty and also so consummately 1980s too. Yes. How is it both Edwardian and 1980s at the same time? Well, it's kind of like the big frizzy hair too, right? They all have their hair in like these big voluminous kind of frizzed out pompadours and maybe absent the pompadours, but big voluminous frizzy curly hair was such a thing in the 80s too. It all just sort of synced up really nicely there. It did. But some of the bigger changes that happen with the movie that we might question or argue with are a few tonal shifts that changed or influenced some of the themes of the book. One of the major ones is that Marilla holds staying at Green Gables over Anne's head for quite a while. Through the blow up with Mrs. Lynde, the amethyst brooch, the slate incident, and it's not until Anne dyes her hair green that Marilla tells Anne that she is staying forever. She keeps her on trial for quite a long time, and that both significantly raises the stakes for all these mistakes for Anne, and it makes Marilla harsher than she really is. It's pretty cruel to use the threat of sending a child back to an orphanage as a way to ensure good behavior. For all of Marilla's sternness and rigidity in the book, she's never cruel to Anne, and constantly threatening to send her away isn't the Marilla we know from the books. Although in the books, Marilla is no-nonsense and not particularly good at being warm, she also has an instinctive grasp of what Anne needs in a parenting moment and gets a lot right in her early parenting of Anne. So we don't love this shift in the movie, although I understand the need to introduce more dramatic stakes for the sake of the plot and to engage the audience. Yeah, I think this is one of those things that I noticed more as an adult than as a child. As a child, so much of the world feels kind of, I don't know, arbitrary and maybe a little cruel anyway. So you don't really notice how terrible it is, actually to make a child live in constant fear that they'll be sent away and rejected. But as an adult, that hit really hard and made it a lot harder to like Marilla. I do think that Colleen Dewhurst is able to get away with it somewhat because you can see so much of her growing fondness to Anne and her expressions and her reactions, her laugh, that kind of thing. Yes, I suppose that's true. A smaller moment that changes Anne's characterization a little is the mouse in the pudding sauce. In the book, if you'll recall, this incident is recounted by Anne to Diana when Diana is over for the tragic tea. In it, Anne shares that she was so busy dreaming she forgot to cover the pudding sauce and then later discovered the dead mouse in it. She had meant to tell Marilla about it and ask if she should give the sauce to the pigs, but then was so busy imagining something else, it slipped her mind completely and she forgot about the sauce altogether. She only remembered about it when Marilla brought out the plum pudding and sauce when they had visitors and Anne had to announce right at the table that Marilla mustn't use the pudding sauce. So the characterization in the book is all about Anne's distractibility 
irritability and flightiness, it's a key example of how Anne's imagination gets her in trouble. But in the movie, we see Anne discover the mouse in the sauce, spoon it out, and hide it from Marilla, concealing it in a cloth behind her back and hurrying past Marilla to dispose of it. She deliberately doesn't tell Marilla about it, maybe to avoid getting in trouble, only for Miss Stacy to unexpectedly arrive and be invited to dinner. We can see that Anne knows what's about to happen when Marilla brings out dessert and she's wrestling with her conscience about the mouse and whether she should speak up. She only does when she sees Miss Stacy about to take a big bite and her conscience gets the better of her. Anne does explain that she forgot to cover the sauce because she was daydreaming, but the characterization here seems to be more about Anne deliberately hiding it from Marilla rather than the innocent mistake that it is in the book. It's not a big shift, but it was a notable departure from the feel of an incident. And I really wonder what the purpose of that change was. What's added here instead of something that's a little closer to as it was written? Yeah. I mean, it's a funny moment. We all laughed when we watched this. We did. Um, it, it is a really humorous moment, but I think it makes Anne look sneaky and she isn't. One of Anne's best traits is how forthright she is about her own shortcomings. Yes. Another significant tonal shift in the movie comes with some additional scenes that aren't in the book. So as we've discussed at length, in the book, Anne spends the majority of her five years at Green Gables giving Gilbert the silent treatment, essentially. She smashes him on the head with her slate on his first day back at school, and then she refuses to engage with him, to look at him, or to speak to him for most of the years following. Even toward the end of the book, during Anne's Queen's year, when her feelings have thawed and there could have been the tiniest inklings of possible romantic feeling beginning to bloom in her heart, she betrays absolutely none of that outwardly. And of course, we can understand why that might be a little less interesting to portray on the screen. All of Anne's conflict toward Gilbert is internal to her for the most part. The movie does a couple things to change that dynamic. First, Anne meets Gilbert before school starts, when he winks at her at the picnic, and she says she finds him bold for winking at her at the three-legged race, so we do get a little bit of Gilbert's sauciness right away. Then we have the slate smashing and the subsequent freeze-out. So far, we're mostly on track, though. But then we start to get more interaction between them. Gilbert is there when Josie dares Anne to walk the ridgepole, and it is in his presence, and because of Josie's not-so-subtle flirting with Gilbert, that helps push Anne into taking the dare. Then, after Anne saves Minnie Mae in her second year at Green Gables, and Anne is reconciled with the Barry family, the Barrys invite Anne to a Christmas ball, not the concert in the books. Matthew gives Anne the puff sleeve dress, a pale blue in the movie rather than a rich brown in the book. Good change, I think. And then at the ball, we get this kind of odd scene. Diana remarks to Anne when they notice Gilbert dancing with Alice Bell that Gilbert is looking very dashing. When Anne pretends she never noticed Gilbert, Diana remarks provokingly that if Anne hadn't been so mean to Gilbert, he might have asked Anne to dance. Anne then takes this as a challenge and declares that she could get Gilbert to dance with her if she wanted to. In fact, she says Gilbert Blythe would stand on his head for me if I asked him to. Such a strange thing for Anne to say. That's not really book Anne at all. It really isn't. So Diana then basically dares her to. When Anne approaches Gilbert and speaks to him, he flat out ignores her, returning the silent treatment, right? And then he's very warm to Diana, and he wishes Diana a Merry Christmas and walks away from Anne altogether. Anne is clearly hurt by this, as anyone would be, and this continues to fuel her rivalry, but then we see that Gilbert takes Anne's dance card and tucks it into his breast pocket, signaling, I guess, that this interaction has been a bit of a romantic push and pull with Gilbert being just as petty as Anne to get back at her. Then Diana, she recognizes Anne's disappointment and she asks Anne to dance instead. The girls waltz together, it's super cute, and then it cuts to them waltzing in their nightgowns at Diana's house before, of course, they jump onto the spare room bed and Aunt Josephine. 
So this Christmas ball scene takes yeah. the place of the first debating club concert that Anne attends as an audience member with Diana and mm-hmm. the second Christmas concert in which Anne performs amongst many of her schoolmates in her puffed sleeve dress. Right. At the first concert, Diana notes to Anne that Gilbert looks specifically at Anne when he recites the line, there's another, not a sister. And Anne blows off any implications that this might entail. At the second concert, Diana notes that Gilbert took the paper rose that fell out of Anne's hair and tucked it into his breast pocket. And Anne blows this off as well. In neither instance do Anne and Gilbert interact directly. And Gilbert is never petty back to Anne. So I think the scene in the movie gives a much more obvious emphasis on the rivals to lovers connection between Anne and Gilbert. I don't fully know what to make of that scene in the movie. I think one of the things that makes Gilbert so especially sweet in the books is that Anne's war with him is pretty much one-sided. Yes. It's not until they start studying for Queens that he takes up their rivalry in earnest. And even then, it's just the academic rivalry. I'm sure he would still be friends with her if she asked him. But here, it does seem like there's kind of a give and take, a little like cat and mouse game going on. And it does build romantic tension, which is fun. And I definitely loved this, ate this up as a kid. But comparing it to the book, I don't know if it works as well for me. Yes, I agree. It loses some of Gilbert's sweetness, I think. Yeah, we talked a lot in our Gilbert episode about how he is, at his core, just an incredibly kind person. Yeah. And one of the things we talked about is, you know, when Gilbert gives up the Avonlea school for Anne, is he doing that because he likes her, because there's a romantic connection? Or is he just doing that because that's what you do to help a neighbor in need? And it's a little vague, and that's kind of nice. Yeah. So then... We get a few more new scenes in the movie in Anne and Gilbert's relationship. We get more back and forth teasing during the Lily Maid moment between them. As we said in our Gilbert episode, Gilbert never teases Anne at this critical juncture and he never mocks her for getting stranded in the pond. And yet in the interaction in the movie, Gilbert definitely teases her about needing rescue, although he then turns to sincerity. He's the one who tells her that the two of them have tied for first place in the Queen's examination. There's then a moment of sincere connection between the two of them. And even though Gilbert apologizes for the carrots moment, Anne also asks him directly why he ignored her at the Christmas ball. Gilbert admits that he knows that Diana put Anne up to it. So Gilbert was aware that Anne wasn't particularly sincere. She was doing it for the challenge. Mm -hmm. And then Anne doesn't yell at him that she'll never forgive him like in the books. Yeah. Gilbert asks if they can ever be friends. And Anne responds with a more ambiguous, why don't you figure it out for yourself if you're so smart? And then turns to run off to share the good news about the queen's past list with her friends. Weird. It's just weird. She doesn't know what she wants. Yeah. So here it's more clear that she immediately is softening towards him. It's not a hard no, like it is in the book. And maybe part of it is it's the shift in age in the movie and is 15, at least by this point and about Mm -hmm. to start Queens. And in the book, Anne is younger, 13, maybe just turned 14. It's a little unclear because they've pasted a little different. And I think also in the book, Anne softening towards Gilbert after the Lily Maid incident is all internal to herself. It's specifically stated she doesn't want anybody to know. So I guess maybe this is a way of making it explicit. Yeah, they had to find a way to let the audience in on what's going on in Anne's mind. They sort of leave it in this somewhat sincere and, you know, somewhat vulnerable in some ways encounter that then ends very ambiguously. I don't know. It's it. This is weird for me. And then there's an even stranger. I hate this scene, Reagan. So there's this very quick, weird scene between Marilla and Gilbert. 
Marilla is driving home and she passes Gilbert like fishing in a rakish pastoral sort of way. <laughs> wholesome, wholesome, wholesome boy yes. in the stream. Wholesome, cute boy next door, echoes of Huckleberry Finn. <laughs> so anyway, Gilbert greets Marilla and she congratulates him on the Queen's exam. He says some very complimentary things about Anne's academics as well. And Marilla notices that she's very proud of Anne, but that Anne is still very young. And this, we're meant to understand, is a warning to Gilbert in some way. But there hasn't really been anything specifically romantic between Anne and Gilbert that Marilla should even be aware of yet. It's so odd and out of nowhere. Yeah, it feels a little out of any kind of context. Maybe there totally. was going to be some other scenes in there that connected it more. I don't know. I think they were just like, when you have an actress as amazing as Colleen Dewhurst, we're just going to put her in as many scenes as possible. Fair. And I actually read an interesting tidbit about this scene online, which is that I guess this was Jonathan Crombie's first scene that he filmed for um, oh, no kidding. the miniseries. Yeah. And he said that during the filming that Colleen Dewhurst gave him like some really great advice about acting generally and specifically how to portray someone from a different historical era. He said it was something that he carried forth with him for years and years. But again, I just want to flash back on the fact this was his first acting job out of high school. Wow. (laughs) One second you are (laughs) in the school musical. The next second, a legend of old Hollywood is giving you (laughs) advice on how to hold yourself or how to walk or stand as a man from a hundred years ago. Pretty amazing. Amazing. Anyway, so this moment is then followed by us seeing Anne in town picking up some purchases of pretty new clothes to wear to the White Sands Hotel concert where she has been asked to recite. Gilbert catches her on the walk back to Green Gables as Anne is sort of juggling her packages and he offers her a ride. On the ride, he asks if he can escort Anne to the concert and Anne tentatively accepts. This is huge! This is acknowledgement that not only is Anne not mad at Gilbert anymore, but she is acknowledging the beginning of a possible romantic interest. And then Mrs. Lynde, busybody that she is, sees Anne disembark from the buggy, briefly holding Gilbert's hand as he assists her down. We see that Mrs. Lynde is aghast, and it's implied that she runs off to Green Gables to tattle to Marilla because we next see Marilla pacing and upset that Anne was in a carriage with a boy. When Anne arrives home, Marilla is angry with her, and she implies that Anne would be ruining her chance at an education by pursuing romance. Anne tries to protest that it's nothing like that, but she doesn't want to disappoint Marilla, so she has Diana take Gilbert a note declining his invitation with no mention or explanation of why. We then see that at the concert, he starts to approach her afterwards, but Anne is waylaid by well-wishers, and by the time she gets free... He is driven off, and Anne is calling after him. Anne seems to regard this as her mischance to either explain or to reconcile, and then she seems to decide to let it go altogether with Gilbert. After this, we also get a little bit of Diana and Anne reflecting on the concert experience, and when Diana inquires a bit about what happened with Gilbert, we get then a very specific reference to Diana having a crush on Gilbert and never acting on it because she thought Anne was in love with him. And that is not in the text at all. This seems to imply that Diana is maybe a little jealous and there is nothing in the book to show that Diana is interested in Gilbert really at all. No. And it kind of is setting up this love triangle intention that is just, there's no reason for it, really. There isn't. Look, Anne puts up enough barriers to her. Exactly. Gilbert, we don't even need a fake one. 
Exactly. And this is actually interesting to me because I think this is one of those moments that in my mind I thought did exist in the book. And then when we started doing our deep dive, I was like, oh no, Diana is nothing but loving and supportive. She acknowledges that Gilbert is kind of cute at one point, but she never expresses any interest in him or anything in the books. No, she's the one who's calling Anne's attention to all of these little moments from Gilbert that seem romantic. She's all like, look, he likes you. And Anne's like, nope. Nope, nope. Yeah, he took your rose. There's another not a sister. Right. She's kind of trying to play matchmaker. She doesn't have an interest herself. No. So all of these scenes were written for the movie. None of this is in the book. By the White Sands concert in the books, Anne is still stonily freezing Gilbert out and he's returning with the same. And Marilla is not involved in this at all. Yeah, as it should be. Yeah. (laughs) We then see in the movie that at Queens, Anne makes one more attempt to make up to Gilbert after Miss Josephine Barry reminds Anne to make room for love in her life alongside her ambition. We also get Miss Josephine Barry telling us that she made her money herself and that's why she just never got married. Mm, Questionable. But she doesn't say why. Or how. Or Or how. how. So Anne takes Gilbert a note to his boarding house, a library, unclear. Starbucks. (laughs) Maybe it was the equivalent of a Starbucks. Right. Some place where people go to study. Right. And instead of leaving it at the front desk, as she intended, the guy at the front desk tells her, oh, you can take it into him yourself. She enters a common room, which is filled with students, and sees Gilbert sitting at a table talking to another young woman. Nothing nefarious, just talking to a woman. Oh, yeah. God forbid Gilbert should study with another girl. And it's, I think, implied, if you listen carefully, that... This is Emily Clay, who is Anne's rival for the Avery Scholarship. Sure, her academic rival. Yeah. Maybe it seems like a double betrayal. I don't know. Anne turns on her heel and retreats, ripping up the note angrily. And I suppose maybe this is to take the place of Anne noticing Gilbert walking with Ruby Gillis and wishing internally that she could walk with Gilbert sometimes. I guess all of these additional scenes are to give more of a romantic connotation to Anne and Gilbert's connection early on. I get it from a dramatic sense, but I don't love the way it casts Marilla as the barrier in this relationship. And then at the very end, after Matthew's death, Marilla does share with Anne how she's been courted by and then quarreled with Gilbert's dad and how she always regretted it. I suppose that's Marilla giving her tacit approval for Anne to pursue something with Gilbert. Yeah. It's framed around that Anne should forgive Gilbert, but it seems like that hasn't been an issue for Anne in a while here in the movie version. There's that internal inconsistency, right? Where they want to have it both ways, where Anne is both sort of warming to Gilbert and maybe interested in some kind of a romantic or like friendship plus connection, but also is still angry with him. And it's like, you can't have it both ways, right? Like we have to have some consistency here. They want it to be both Anne's pride that is the barrier, or it's these external factors that are a barrier. Right, right. When truly, I mean, Marilla doesn't care. I mean, I don't think she worries about it too much. Marilla wants Anne to be happy. Come on. (laughs) But so Reagan, now let's talk about a few things that we absolutely love in this movie. Yes. One of the things I wanted to mention is that I think that this is quite a sensory movie, if that makes sense. Although there isn't really an elegant way to incorporate Maud's descriptions of Prince Edward Island into the movie, it does an amazing job of engaging with the audience with how life in Avonlea must have felt. On our rewatch, I couldn't stop looking at the knit sweaters and shawls and getting that sense of just really cozy hominess from it. Anne's sweet little bedroom, Marilla's kitchen, the stables where Matthew 
feeds the animals, all of those settings really came alive for me. Yes. I think this movie made Prince Edward Island a destination vacation. Oh, yeah. The scenery is just gorgeous all the way through. It really makes you yearn for country life. You can practically smell the apple blossoms and the fresh green grass at every turn. And there's just so much, I guess, sort of texture to the movie that makes it feel really... Alive. Yeah, exactly. Another moment that really works for me in the movie is the Lily Maid scene. You can just feel the romance that Anne and the girls are trying to capture when they sent Anne off across the pond. And then you can also feel the sort of the water creeping around Anne as she realizes the boat is sinking. It is perfect. It's equal parts gorgeous, like visually stunning and absolutely hilarious. You know what was funny? I loved watching this with you and my daughter She knows what's coming and she's watching Anne in the boat. The audience can see the water starting to creep up, but Anne hasn't noticed it yet. She's so in her imagination. And my daughter was yelling, Anne, pay attention. The water, notice the water. (laughs) It was really funny. And, you know, another thing I think of is Matthew's gift of the puff sleeve dress. That is really one of the highlights of this adaptation for me. We talked about how funny the scene in the shop is, but just that look on Anne's face when she floats down the stairs in that beautiful blue dress. And what girl our age did not want that dress, right? Oh, 100%. Yeah. And just seeing that moment brought to life and, of course, seeing the dress as beautiful blue and not brown like in the books, that is a big high point. We talked about how Maude really gives Anne's time at Queen's short shrift in the books, condensing what must have been a very formative year of Anne's life into a chapter and a half. Yeah. And the movie doesn't dwell too long on her Queen's days either, but you do get to see her in class and studying. You do get to see the campus environment and you get a sense of her life as a scholar in a more pronounced sense than in the book. Plus, who doesn't love three cheers for Anne Shirley, winner of the Avery? Yes. And seeing the students carrying Anne out on their shoulders, triumph. Triumph, yes. I really like the Queen's Academy scenes. There is sort of that academic sense to it. Everybody's wearing tweed and hustling about with books under their arms. I It feels so collegiate. It really is. Walking along against like the brick buildings, wearing their smart little straw hats. Yes, I like that. And you get a, a deeper sense of it in the adaptation than you do in the books. Another thing I really love was seeing Anne perform The Highwayman. You know, in the book, we're told how well she did, but Megan Follows really delivers a great performance of the poem as well. And you can understand why Anne was so proud of herself and then just so celebrated by everyone who saw the performance. We've talked about the great casting overall, but the chemistry between Anne and Marilla is so great. They're phenomenal scene partners. Between Megan Follows' big (laughs) declarations and Colleen Dewhurst's wryly amused reactions, they just play off each other so perfectly. And then no scene will ever be more heartbreaking than after Matthew dies and Marilla finally breaks down in Anne's bedroom. Stoic Marilla is finally feeling her feelings. And then when she tells Anne that while she isn't always able to say how she feels, she loves Anne as if she were her own flesh and blood. It is very hard not to break down yourself. Oh, I tear up every time. Oh, I think we all did, didn't we? Mm -hmm. I think this movie really nails the humor in the book as well. Hmm. Watching Marilla and Miss Stacy absolutely crack up at the dinner table is hilarious. 
And all of Anne's dramatic speeches absolutely hit the sweet spot of Anne taking herself very seriously. But the audience seeing how funny her declarations are while not laughing at Anne, laughing with her. That's a distinction that the movie captures really nicely. And, you know, for all the ways that we discussed of how this miniseries differs from the book, I also appreciated how closely it sticks to some of those major narrative arcs and themes and even the dialogue from the original novel. You can tell that the filmmakers had just a genuine love and reverence for the source material and that they wanted to see the book on the screen as opposed to writing Anne fanfic. Well, at least for this movie. Everything kind of goes off the rails in that third one. What's interesting, though, is I read that Kevin Sullivan had not actually read the book before he bought the rights to it. No kidding. Well, he did a great job. Isn't that interesting? Personally, I appreciate that this miniseries exists because it was a big cultural moment and it's probably what brought me to Anne, my lifelong book bestie. For me too. I think that was my entry point in a way I might not have thought to read Anne otherwise. Yeah. So for our Birch Path today, we are going to mention a few of the other movie and television adaptations of Anne that we are not going to cover in depth in this podcast. So let me say, before we get into that, that I haven't watched a lot of these for a reason that's particular to me, which is that I, generally speaking, do not like non-canon material, like at all, for any book I love. I completely understand why folks love to write fan fiction, and they should, but I have no interest in reading it because if it isn't in the book, it didn't happen. I think I feel very literal when I read that it feels very much like when I'm reading, I'm getting a door into some other reality. Like if you wrote fan fiction about my sister's secret life, what? No, she's a real person. She has a real life. Do you know what I mean? Like that's the the characters feel really, when the characters feel real to you, you know, you don't feel like you could just take liberties with their story. No, no. That makes sense. Absolutely not at all. So I have had very little interest in most adaptations that veer too far from the source material. Mm -hmm. I couldn't even bring myself to watch Road to Avonlea when I was young. No. No. Because it was not faithful in any way to the story girl in the Golden Road, which I love. It just Mm -hmm. created plots and characters from whole cloth. No, thank you. (laughs) If maybe they had called it something different and didn't try to make it like Lucy Maud Montgomery fan fiction, Maybe I could have gotten into it. And I accept that this is completely my problem and says nothing about what else could be gotten from adaptations that are more loosely inspired by source material. It is definitely one of my blind spots. I know. (laughs) I know that's not true for you, Kelly. No, I love fanfic. I just really like to play in the world that an author creates, even if it's not true to what's on the page. And I think you mentioned the perfect example of that in Road to Avonlea, because that was sort of that loose adaptation of so many of Maud's various works. And just growing up, that was on the Disney Channel on repeat throughout the early 90s, and I watched as much of it as I could. It didn't matter to me that it wasn't Anne, although, believe me, I definitely felt that Anne was superior, but I was just happy to be in the world. Nope, nope. <laughs> but anyway, and, and I can't judge Road to Avonlea. It could be very delightful. I just- It was very delightful. I just refused to Sarah Polly as a kid? No, it's very, very delightful. It has a lot of the same, I think, kind of sweetly sort of countrified qualities that you see in Anna Green Gables. Yes. And if they had just not branded it as Avonlea, I might have been fine. <laughs> I You're like, I love... Chronicles of Prince Edward Island. Generally. Yes. Yes. <laughs> we, we digress. So let's talk about an adaptations. So first off, besides this particular miniseries, Kevin Sullivan has done some follow-ups to this movie. The next one he did has been titled both Anne of Avonlea and 
Anne of Green Gables, the sequel. And that title has changed back and forth between like the CBC broadcast and then the Disney Channel broadcast and then the DVDs. So both are correct. This version roughly covers and condenses the events of Anne of Avonlea, Anne of the Island, and Anne of Windy Poplars. And it starts straying further and further from the book. It does have Megan Follows and Jonathan Crombie who are lovely in it. But if you're going to watch it, just take it with a huge grain of salt. And then there's the third one and the continuing story. And apparently a fourth one and a new beginning, which are not based on the books at all. And we do not recommend them. No, we do not. We do not speak of them. No, they don't exist. But besides Kevin Sullivan's various adaptations, there have been quite a few other TV shows and movies based on Anne. The very first movie was a silent film made in 1919, and it is considered a lost film. Nobody can access it anymore. It's gone. But Maud herself did not like this movie at all. And it contains several of what she called absurdities, like an encounter with a skunk that Anne thinks is a kitten, despite the fact that there were no skunks on Prince Edward Island at the time. And there's a scene where Anne brandishes a shotgun to fend off an angry mob that is congregated at her schoolhouse door for some reason. I mean, that is ridiculous. A skunk? This is Anne would never. Anne would never. There was a 1934 film in which the actress Dawn O'Day played Anne. And then... Dawn O'Day changed her stage name to Anne Shirley during the movie and kept it that way throughout her career. So she's credited in the movie as Anne Shirley. That's bananas. Yeah, what? she really, <laughs> really identified with Anne. I guess. Wow. But this was apparently a rather good movie. It was a surprise hit and was one of the top grossing films for RKO the year that it was released. Nice. Another famous adaptation of Anne is the Japanese animated television series, Akaj no Anne. I could be pronouncing that completely wrong. (laughs) Which means red-haired Anne, and it was produced in 1979 with 50 episodes. This series is beloved in Japan, and the director... Isao Takahata holds very true to the original source material. I'm quite curious about this version because I wonder if the slower pace of a TV show lets it feel a bit truer to the book. Yeah. I think of all the Anna adaptations that I haven't seen, I'd be most interested in watching this one. I think 50 episodes, that's pretty much the pace that I want for Anne's story to unfold. Yes, me too. I took a look at the episode listings and it really seems like it tracks very closely with the book and kind of in the same order as the chapters. Yeah. Yeah. Sullivan Entertainment also created an animated series of Anne in 2001. It has Uh one season, 26 (laughs) episodes. Okay. Episodes are framed as being more educational with each episode giving the characters a problem to solve. And they also pull sporting characters from Sullivan's production of Road to Avonlea, which is based on the story girl in the Golden Road. Taking a look at the episode guide, this series veers pretty far from the book and seems to just take some of the characters and put them in typical like sitcom learning situations. Like there's the time that Gilbert is the captain of the hockey team and everyone forgets about being good sports. Yeah. So I'm not a fan of that kind of preachiness. And to be honest, the pictures of the animation aren't particularly interesting visually. So I don't know if I'm going to track that one down. You kind of get the sense that Sullivan Entertainment, since they bought the rights to Anna Green Gables, just have them in like a stranglehold yeah. and will continue to churn out whatever sort of AM product they need to stay relevant. Makes sense. You got to keep, <laughs> keep it going. There's also a 90 minute live action made for TV movie in 2016 starring Martin Sheen. Martin Sheen. 
as Matthew Cuthbert and has two sequels released in 2017 as well called Anne of Green Gables, The Good Stars and Anne of Green Gables, Fire and Dew. And honestly, when I was researching this, there's not a lot written out there about these television movies. I think what seems to be the case is that it's pretty faithful to the book, but kind of charmless and doesn't bring anything interesting to the dialogue. I mean, I'm kind of just surprised that I hadn't heard of these before. Like 2016, 2017 is pretty recent. Martin Sheen is a pretty big star. How did this not even come across my radar? Yeah, I can't even tell you. I mean, I could probably research it and tell you later, like on what television platform they were released. Yeah, that's just interesting. I don't think they really went anywhere. Yeah, I don't think these are anybody's favorite versions of Anne. But speaking of people's favorite versions of Anne, we will be watching the first season of the Netflix show Anne with an E for our next episode. So I hope you all will stay tuned for that discussion. I know that that has a lot of fans. So I'm excited to watch it and get into that. Yeah, me too. I think that I watched some of the episodes pretty close to when it first released and it veered far enough away from kind of the original source material that I was like, okay, I don't feel the need to commit to this right now, Mm. but I always intended to come back to it. So I'm happy that we're going to do this. So moving on to our inspired by, what do you think, Reagan? Were you inspired by Anne in this movie? Yes, I was definitely inspired by Anne's hairstyles. And so was my daughter. In fact, the very next day, she asked me to do her hair where the top part is in a braid and then the rest is down. And it looked just as cute on her as it did on Megan Follows. Oh, I believe it. She made note of several of Anne's other school day hairstyles for her own repertoire. (laughs) Anne is inspiring me to break out of my boring mom bun hairstyle and use more braids in my hair. So if it's been a long time since you've braided your hair, you guys, I think you should give it a try in honor of Megan Follows. I have to laugh a little bit that Alice thought it was such a pretty and unique hairstyle to have half up, half down and have the half up part braided because Reagan, that is how I wore my hair to school for maybe five straight years. <laughs> Definitely from like end of elementary school till high school. That was like how I wore my hair to school every year. I didn't realize that kids didn't do that anymore. Yeah, I don't think so. She usually wears it in some form of ponytail, like a low ponytail. And that seems to be what I see most of the kids in her class do. They mostly do a low ponytail or the ponytail bun or their hair is just down and in their face all the time. (laughs) That's interesting. You know, I was inspired by the fashion, unsurprisingly, but specifically by the sweaters. (laughs) They did have, she did have some good sweaters. Right? (laughs) Maybe I was just cold when we were watching it, but you know, that pink and gray sweater that Anne wears toward the end of the movie, I need that in my life. What a beautiful, beautiful garment. It is a lovely cardigan. Some of Marilla's shawls. I was just like clocking all of the beautiful knitwear. Well, now we're all old enough to be wearing Marilla's styles, so. Bring it on. (laughs) Exactly. Shawls for the win. (laughs) I'll take my Mrs. Lind outfits, please. Well, thank you so much, Kindred Spirits, for joining us today. We really had fun revisiting this classic, and we hope you did too. We're going to talk about season one of Anne with an E for our next episode, so please join us for that discussion as well. If you have a favorite Anne adaptation that we absolutely can't miss, please let us know. You can message us on Instagram at kindredspirits.bookclub, and we'd love it if you'd follow us there as well. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast wherever you listen, and thanks so much, everyone. Bye, everyone. 